Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to Girls on Film, the film review podcast from a female perspective. I'm your host, Anna Smith, and I'm recording this in April 2020. This episode is the third of our isolation pods recorded in our virtual studio during lockdown. Today, I'm speaking to a mother and daughter duo, film critic Hannah Flint and former Labour MP Caroline Flint. Hannah is a freelance film critic and journalist for Shortlist, Time Out and BBC Culture, and she's the co-founder of the First Film Club. Caroline was MP for Don Valley and Doncaster for 22 years and a former government minister. At university, she studied film alongside American history and literature. She loves going to the cinema and her record is six movies in one day. Hello to Hannah. Hello. And hello to Caroline. Hello. Thank you both so much for coming on to Girls on Film's latest isolation pod. You are a first for us. You are first mother-daughter combo. Congratulations. <laughs> Yay, look at us, Mum. This is a whole new career opening up for us, Hannah. You realise that, don't you? I know. Who'd have thought? Maybe this could be our, like, a rebirth. Flint on films, isn't it? Sorry, we're stealing your podcasting now. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take the credit. Don't worry. We'll take the credit. <laughs> 20%. Yeah. Now, where are you both? Caroline, where are you speaking to us from? I'm at home in Doncaster. And, uh, yeah, the weather's looking pretty good outside. And we've been in isolation up here since, well, since all the shutdown and restrictions started. And Hannah, are you in London? Yeah, I'm in London on my own, but actually I feel like I'm thriving in isolation. I know it's not the thing to say, but I'm actually quite enjoying myself. I'm enjoying the time alone. I'm kind of eating better. I'm doing my exercise, you know, living my best life as you possibly can when you can't see anyone. I can vouch for that. I mean, we do FaceTime at least twice a day. And there was a period where I was saying, don't you think you should come home to mama, you know, and come up here. <laughs> but she is, she's doing really well, actually. And uh, obviously, technology has helped people keep in touch more so that's helped too but I'm very proud of it oh that's nice able to be reassured due to the power of technology absolutely before we go into the reviews Hannah tell us a bit about the first film club that you launched yeah so um, it's a screening event that I set up with a couple of friends who work in the film industry and we really wanted to celebrate the kind of origins of directors careers especially from diverse backgrounds what we do is we pair an established filmmaker and screen their directorial debut and then we pair them with an emerging filmmaker who hasn't done a feature yet but they've done their first or second short film and we screen their films together and then we do a Q&A with both directors afterwards our last one was with Gurinder Chada and we screened Bargy on the Beach before that we did Amara Sante's A Way of Life um, and we have Mike Lee as well involved who showed bleak moments but it's really lovely and I think there's some films that you never really get an opportunity to see the first time around especially you know when you've got these amazing filmmakers out you could get them on DVD or might be on streaming but there's nothing quite like the communal experience of watching a film on the big screen. Well congrats that sounds brilliant and it's interesting you talk about the communal experience of watching a movie in the cinema because Caroline I believe you're a big fan of the cinema I am. and that you did six movies in one day. 
Impressive. I have done six movies in one day. Do you want me to rattle off what they were? Go on, <laughs> tell us, tell us. Uh, well, we started about 9.30 in the morning and went on to about half 11. I try to organise it so I don't have to necessarily watch all the adverts six times during the day. But we had Skeleton Key, Kate Hudson, Madagascar, uh, The Timber and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Fantastic Four with Jessica Elba, Wedding Crashers and Mr and Mrs Smith. Amazing. So this was all in one cinema. That's quite a while ago. (laughs) (laughs) It is quite a while ago. The thing is, obviously, when I was a member of parliament, sometimes it's quite hard to find the time to go to the cinema. And I usually go to one in Sheffield where I try to stack up some movies so I can I never do fewer than two because it's so hard sometimes to get to cinema. So I try and have a cinema day like when I can. And as Hannah said, I think the great I mean, it's great having Netflix and all these other outlets, but I think one of the great things about the cinema is you can have both that individual experience, being in the dark, watching the big screen, but collective experience at the same time, which I think is really magical. Can I just say, though, how she plans these days? Because before, <laughs> obviously, I do film criticism where I can go to screenings. We have the special cards, you know, you pay a month and you get a monthly and you see as many unlimited cards, right? But what my mom does is that she'll print off all the worst <laughs> show times and then she'll be there in a corner and you can't disturb her and she'll work out she'll like right okay this is what we're gonna do we're gonna go this time if we do this we can switch it around <laughs> and she'll have it written down like a list mum loves lists and she loves the organization it's kind of like therapeutic for her to do it that way well that is your spin on it Hannah maybe you know but I mean <laughs> I think it's just being practical but I have to own up and I don't know if this makes me a bad mum but um when obviously Hannah and her brothers were younger and we all love going to the cinema But when they got a little bit older, I am a fan of the multiplex for families because when they got older, I was able to sometimes work out some screenings. And, um, you know, I hope I don't get criticised for saying this, but I was able to time it so I could put the kids in one film and my husband and I could go and see a rather more adult film in another screen. (laughs) And then then I would say to the eldest one, I mean, they were tiny tots, by the way. Right, you know, if you come out... Five years old, Anna, it's actually child neglect. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't, they weren't. I said, if you come out two minutes earlier, five minutes later, you just sit there and don't talk to anybody. Having said that, so many films, when Hannah and her brothers were growing up, and even more so now, work on those dimensions, something for the kids and something for the adults. Even things like Toy Story were that sort of thing where, you know, the adults would get certain jokes, which would be above the kids' heads, but the kids would still enjoy it as well. But I've always been defending the multiplex for that very reason, that everybody gets a good choice. Childcare, basically. (laughs) Yeah, basically, yeah. Yeah. Now, in isolation, a lot of people are turning to classic films that they know and love, of course, and re-watching them for a sense of comfort. I re-watched Groundhog Day the other day. I think it was my 50th time or thereabouts. So I wanted to ask you both briefly, which film do you think you have seen the most times? Oh, God. Um, funny enough, Anna, I was going to say Groundhog Day. It is such ah, perfect. a lovely movie. You know, and actually another film that I sort of come back to as a comfort film is The Family Stone. And it's interesting that both those films have a sort of Partly there's that Christmas thing about it in terms of the sort of films you all come together as a family and watch often at Christmas. But I mean, Groundhog Day, it doesn't wear no matter how many times you, you watch it. It's such a brilliantly constructed film and the acting and the writing and just the whole thing about it is really great. Yeah, Groundhog Day is very much, I think, up there for me. Anna? So I have like a toss up where I feel like it's probably Step Brothers. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> because, and mum will back this up, we watch it. And we feel like there's a lot of it that is based on my own childhood and my brothers, especially one of my brothers, (laughs) just kind of (laughs) 
some of the fights, you know, oh, I mean, obviously not as adults, we're not as adults fighting, <laughs> but a lot of it reminded us when we were younger, like we'd have fights and then suddenly we'd make up because suddenly like we're watching TV, you know, the bit where it's like they have this massive fight and then it cuts to them watching Shark Week. I just, the absurdity of it and how childlike, I think it's just such a comfort to watch those films. I think I just, you know, anything really, well, the earlier stuff by Will Ferrell, I mean, the later stuff kind of not as kind of captured the greatness but yeah Step Brothers feels like just timeless stupidity that I love. I remember going to the press screening for that one actually and they gave us copious amounts of alcohol first and everyone was just absolutely in fits of laughter. I don't think I've <laughs> yeah. watched it in full since but that's a good recommendation I might give that a try at home. Yeah. yeah. So by contrast we are now going to talk about Little Women. Greta Gerwig's wonderful award-winning adaptation mm. of Louisa May Alcott's classic book is coming out on digital on May the 11th and to own physically on May 25th. The film stars Saoirse Ronan, Florence Pugh, Emma Watson, Eliza Scanlon, Laura Dern, Meryl Streep and Timothy Chalamet. Let's have a listen to a clip. I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe, to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says... <laughs> Girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. So, in the run-up to the release, we want to look at both the book and the film and their relevance to the times we are currently living in. But let's start with the book. Caroline, when did you first read the book Little Women? I think it must have been, you know, as a child. I don't think I've read it as an adult. I sort of read it again in the last week just to remind myself. But it was one of those books, you know, along with reading sort of Enie Blyton and uh, Jane Austen, which I loved as well. Um, but I read when I was probably about 13, 14. And of course, you know, certainly I can remember watching on television the 1949 version, which had Elizabeth Taylor as the Amy character, which had the full Technicolor treatment. So, yeah, it's uh, it certainly was part of my growing up. And how about for you, Hannah? Actually, mum was reading my old copy of the book from uni. <laughs> but with Little Women, what I was surprised by reading it now is just how even the bits that they leave out from the film, just how progressive it was and quite different to the family setup, which I'm used to reading kind of classic tales, especially the mother-daughter relationship, which feels very different to how I see it presented in Jane Austen, which I've read those books, I mean, I have one of those volumes which has every Jane Austen book, and I remember reading that all the time. So, yeah, it's interesting how Greta was able to kind of, like, find that truth and insert it with some contemporary kind of ideas of feminism as well. Thinking back to the impact on me as a child was more about the fact that there were these sisters getting up to all sorts of mischief with their mum, the father wasn't around... And it sort of played into some of those other things as a child wanting to have adventures and what have you. I think some of the other aspects of it, which is about women's role in society, what they could do and what they couldn't do, certainly rereading it in the last week and picking up on the latest version, the Gerwig version, you get much more of a sense about what was Louisa writing about. And actually, really what's come home to me in the in the last week, thinking about the film and reading the book, is how... Actually, it's about her life and what she wanted out of her life as much as anything else, because she was this amazing woman who uh, was interested in women's suffrage. She was the first person to register to vote in her home area. She was involved in lots of campaigns. And of course, she did remain at a spinster for the rest of her life because she wanted to be in control of her own destiny and earn her own money. 
Well said. And Hannah, as you mentioned, the film does have a very interesting relationship between a mother and her daughters. I mean, I have to ask you both, did anything resonate for you or feel familiar? <laughs> you know what? I think it's interesting how our relationship has developed. And I definitely feel like, I suppose now that I'm 30, you know, 32 in a few weeks, just how when I was a lot younger, I probably was not as respectful as my mum that I should have been. You know, I mean, teenage rebel, do you know what I mean? Teenage kind of like your mum's like, oh, mum. Whereas actually in the last 10 years, like my mum said, I speak to her every day and there's lots I rely upon her and actually include her in the kind of how I feel about my life, I suppose, and how I feel about my work and my career, my love life. I mean, one of the big things that stood out for me in the film is that moment where Joe is having that existential crisis of saying to her mother, she's like, women, we're more than just pretty heads. We've got more to us. We have souls. But then I also am just so lonely and want to be loved. And, and I'm not afraid to admit this, but actually just before Christmas, it was approaching the end of the decade. And I had a similar kind of existential crisis of being single and not having anything romantically to show for it and feeling like I'm so happy with my work and stuff. But also I'm just like so lonely because I don't have a person with me. And my mum is the person that I wanted to speak to about it, you know, and I called her up. And I think that's one thing it gets to is that there is something about having that kind of relationship with your mother that no matter what, even when you're kind of, even the little things, that's who you want to kind of speak to. And as much as I have an amazing relationship with my dad, like there is something that only your mother can really get. And I'm sorry, you know, obviously this is very specific. And to those who don't have mothers out there, I'm not trying to make, you know, feel bad, but it's just something that I feel that I'm really privileged that I have had a mother who is so involved and there for me and willing to kind of talk me through my issues, you know. Oh, that's so lovely to hear. Yeah, my mother passed 10 years ago, sadly, but I remember those moments with her and those kind of conversations with her, you know, as you're growing up. And I think that scene you're referring to is, is fantastic. Uh, let's have a listen to a clip of that. I just, I just feel, I just feel like women, they, they have minds and they have souls as well as just hearts and they've got ambition and they've got talent as well as just beauty and I'm so sick of people saying that that love is just all a woman is fit for I'm so sick of it but I'm I'm so lonely I love that scene when Mommy turns around and says she feels angry almost every day and it's taken her sort of 40 years to act calm and I'm sure that a lot of mothers can relate to that. Caroline, is that something you would relate to? I really love that in the film because I don't think it's been in any of the other versions. It happens, you know, after there's a... Joe's blaming herself for how her anger got the better of her. And her mum says, I'm angry nearly every day of my life, Joe, but I've learned not to show it and I still hope to learn not to feel it. And you realise in this version with Laura Dern, you're seeing much more of this woman and what she's about and what she's having to deal with. Because the truth is, the father, he might be a great guy, but he's just not there. She's having to cope with everything. What we know from the book and what we know from the film is that he's made mistakes in terms of finances, which has not left them completely poor, but they clearly are not able to afford things that many of their other contemporary families of the same class would do at the time. And she's holding it all together. And I think it... I think it spoke to me as a mother because there's no such thing as a perfect mum. And actually, sometimes you're trying to keep things together for the sake of everyone else. And that's not easy. And that's why, particularly this latest version of Little Women, I think has such resonance and reach beyond the period in which it was set. Did you uh, discuss the film when you both saw it or did you see it together by any chance? 
No, I saw it in London. Yeah, I saw it in Doncaster, in Sheffield. <laughs> but the thing is, what we do is mum will call me weekly. If they ever go to the cinema, they'll debrief me because that's one of our favourite things about what we'd always used to do. We, mum said we'd go to the multiplex and on the drive home, we'd kind of dissect the movies and have discussions. So mum will ring me up and tell me what she thinks about the film. And I remember you ring me up about this and saying, actually, you really loved it. We kind of had a nice discussion. I was going to say, though, it's interesting. One thing I quite liked about it, like comparing it to Jane Austen, I mean, you compare Marmee to Mrs. Bennet, who is just this kind of pecking, obsessive about getting her children married off to good suitors. And you just see the absolute opposite of that in Marmee. And especially in the book, you feel this far more. They're sensible and they care more about that their children are happy for love. And obviously they don't want, you know, a lot lot's talked about Meg not marrying too soon to Mr. Brooks. And you get a real sense that these are progressive people who aren't worried about whether they get a good match. It's whether they're going to be happy with that person. And I think that actually that's a really progressive thing at the time because obviously women were more of a commodity and they go from ownership from the father to the husband. And I think she captures it very well, Greta Gerwig, the additional speech she gives to Amy, Florence Pugh in the film. But it's really lovely to kind of see that sort of progressive attitude towards what people expect from marriage and what their hopes for their children as well, which I think at the time you didn't really see as much of that through the mothering kind of characters. Or maybe I just haven't read enough. (laughs) No, I think you're right, Hannah. I mean, it so much more than some of the other versions is the fleshing out of the characters of the daughters is so great and actually I think Florence Pugh's Amy was an absolute triumph because in in previous versions she's always been the bratty spoilt one and she's had some of that in in this film as well there's no doubt about that but she also in her own way different to Joe the character Joe is addressing the lot of women in life and the choices or the limited choices they have and in her own way, she's trying to strike out and find where she can in that that society, her own ambition and her own independence. And I thought that was something that really stood out. And you do get a sense of that in the book. In some ways, although in the book, the character of Meg and Joe are close together, actually, in terms of their approach and attitudes, actually, Joe, I think, and Amy have got a lot more in common than you might think. Are there any particular characters that either of you related to the most? Because I know a lot of girls growing up would say, oh, I want to be Joe," or I relate to Amy. Um, Hannah, did you feel that at all? Um, I think I felt, I felt like I was actually a mixture between Joe and Amy. I think what's interesting is Little Women, the 1990s one with Winona Ryder was my first entry into the story. And actually what I found really quite impressive with Greta's is that they expanded the characters where you got far more understanding of who they are as people. I think when you go from, is it Kirsten Dunst to Samantha Mathis, who plays the older version, it seems like such a kind of jarring jump. Whereas what you get a bit more, and I suppose in the books, which I read, and it actually made me like Amy far more reading the book than I did watching the film, is because you realise like, she's actually just quite intelligent and she knows how to read the room. She wants something, you know, from when she realises that she might be able to get this ring from her Aunt Mark, she's like, right, well, I'll behave. She's constantly learning and improving. And I definitely feel that's something in me and that I've always wanted to be liked by people, especially from moving from London to Doncaster, being the kind of outsider. You, I found it very easy. I'm quite adaptable in that way. But then there's also something about Jo where it's just her fierce independence of not feeling like she wants to get married. Although I don't think I'm as kind of bold as she is in just being quite flippant and rude with people's feelings. There's some moments in it. I mean, the way she ends up talking herself out of that trip 
to France, you're kind of like, well, you set yourself up there. You basically played yourself there, Joe, because you're just too, you've got no tact. And that's the thing. So I think after reading the book and watching the film, I definitely feel like I'm a cross between those two. But also I think there's a, I love how Amy is so, you know, she's a great painter, but the fact that she's like, if I'm not a genius, I'll teach. And she's so, that kind of imposter syndrome, I think a lot of women get. It's like, she's amazing what she does, but she just doesn't feel like she's got that genius. And I think we've all felt that a bit, you know. Mm. I think we doubt ourselves a lot. I certainly think in my writing, sometimes I write a review, I'm like, God, should I be using longer words? You know, sometimes I'm, you, you get that kind of doubt in your head. And I just like how pragmatic she is about things and her willingness to just do what she needs to do to get the life that she wants. And I think that's what I can really relate to. Caroline, any of the characters? I mean, you spoke about Joe. I suppose in many respects, I think about my, my own childhood and family because my mother died when I was 28. And, you know, that's a long time ago now. I'm 58 now. And during my childhood, there were some aspects of it which, which were great, but there's some aspects that weren't. I mean, I lived away from home twice before I went to university. And I think for me, as a child, as a teenager, when I used to watch these and used to, on a Saturday afternoon, watch this film on BBC Two, there always used to be one at about three o'clock. Often they were those films about these families and everything. And I'd be thinking, oh my goodness, this would be lovely if we had a family like this. And you'd sort of take the tinsel from it. But actually, as you, I've grown older, realising that families, even the most perfect, aren't that perfect. And it's difficult and all the different personalities in it. And I suppose for me, with Joe reaching out, for me, I'm the first in my family to go to university. And that was daunting in itself because I had nobody else to tell me what to do, how to get there, what courses you should do and all of this sort of thing. I'm very proud to have done that. But I think, again, part of my life has been about feeling every day I have to prove myself, particularly because I've done things that are first or where women aren't particularly represented, politics, for example is still the case, even though there are more women MPs and, and women in senior positions in both public and private sectors of life, it still sometimes feels that you're having to prove yourself every day. We get a lot of guests who, everything they've achieved, amazing women, still feel the imposter syndrome and still have that doubt. Yeah. And I think it's something that, unfortunately, women perhaps are played with more than men because of, as you say, the way we're brought up and the cliches and the stereotypes that are imposed upon us. I think the thing about literature and film is that a group of people could read the same book. But actually, undoubtedly, something about what's happened in your own life plays into that and what you take from it. And that's what makes it that special individual connection, which can be quite profound. We're actually going to be asking our listeners to tweet us and tell us what they think about the book, whether they're rereading it or reading it for the first time. So I think it'd be really interesting to see how people are responding to it in a personal level, because uh, Little Women Book Club is launching today with Girls on Film in association with Sony and Books on the Underground. And the idea is to get people sharing a communal reading experience before we can all watch the film at home on May the 11th. I actually spoke to the founder of Books on the Underground, Holly Fraser. Let's have a listen. So Holly Fraser, welcome to Girls on Film. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Well, you founded Books on the Underground. Can you tell us what it is and why you came up with the idea? I can, yeah. I founded Books on the Underground in 2012. I was commuting every day from Dalston to West Kensington and started reading again. 
and noticed, I guess, like an underground community of commuters always reading. I'd always get the same overground train. It kind of became like a little way that I was spotting the next book I was going to read. And I just thought how awesome it would be if people were like leaving books for each other, kind of in the same way people were chucking the metro on the underground and picking it up. And so I talked about it for a really long time. So my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, but he was like, just do it. Stop talking about it. Like, who cares? So I designed a sticker and I started it on Twitter and I started leaving books from my bookshelf. And soon um, someone found one and I was like, oh my God, I've succeeded. This is amazing. Like I've made someone's day. This girl was super happy. And so I continued to do it. And then we reached out to... Emma Watson's book club. So Emma Watson runs Our Shared Shelf, which is a feminist book club. And her publicist got back and said, oh my God, she loves this idea. Yes, we want to do it. She's going to write notes for the books. It's like, awesome. Oh, and she wants to leave the books herself. I was like, okay, that would be amazing. Not really realising the power of celebrity at that time, or her power as a celebrity. And in 2016, she did a book drop with Maya Angelou's mum and me and mum. And it went insane. Everybody heard about it. I was, I think I had a couple of thousand followers on Books on the Underground's Instagram. And it was genuinely ticking up followers by the second before my eyes I was like what is going on and just from one post of Emma Watson who now everybody thinks started it and is like the queen book fairy but I'll let her have that (laughs) (laughs) that's very generous of you (laughs) like it's my idea (laughs) yeah but I thought I'd succeeded when one person found a book so when Emma Watson did it I was just it was amazing Actually, in 2015, I left London and I moved to New York. And after Emma's drop in London, she was coming to New York. And her publicist said, oh, she wants to do this in New York with books on the subway. And I was like, oh, hallelujah. And so she came to New York and she was due to drop the book on the day that Trump was elected. And she really brought some positivity to New York at that time. And that, like, I think that really continues on and hopefully we can start to bring positivity back to the people well that's it it's lovely you've obviously started this for the right reasons it's about giving and with no expectation of receiving isn't it but I just think people hearing stories about what you've done is really positive at the moment because we all need positive stories about community about kindness about sharing and now of course Little Women the film is coming out on digital soon and a book club is being launched And we're trying to encourage the listeners to get involved. Why would you suggest that they should read or reread Little Women now? Well, I think it's like one of those books you should read if you're in a bit of a slump. Because it's so empowering and kind of fires you up. And the character of Jo is just like so inspiring. It makes you want to go out there and grab life and do things. So I think it's a good book to read now. Um, Are you a fan of the Greta Gerwig film as well? Oh my gosh, I am, yeah. I was crying. I was crying my heart out at the cinema. I think the way she did it was really, really smart and such a tough, tough book to do. I mean, I'm such a huge critic of any book to movie. It really, like, gets me upset a lot of the time. I'm like, oh my gosh, it ruined the book. But I didn't think that at all. It was just so great. How can people find out more about your work? 
you can visit booksonthesubway.com or you can follow Books on the Underground on Instagram or Books on the Subway on Instagram too. Fantastic. Holly, thank you so much for coming on to Girls on Film and telling us about your work. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to join the Little Women Book Club, follow us on socials, hashtag Little Women Book Club, and tell us what you're loving about the book and any of your reactions to it, whether it's which character you most relate to or your own feminist analysis. We'll be inviting some of our listeners onto next week's show. So get reading and get in touch ASAP if you'd like the chance to be included. The Twitter feeds to follow are at girlsonfilm underscore pod, at Sony Picks at home, and at books underground, and that's spelt B-O-O-K-S-U-N-D-E-R-G-R-N-D. Hannah, do you think there's something about reading the book, knowing other people are reading it at the same time as you, which is valuable? I suppose it's the same thing as watching a, watching a movie together. You know, there's something you're reading at the same time, you're taking it in at the same time. I think it's about... It's all about the reading, but for me, it's the discussion afterwards. It's let's share our ideas and how we respond to it and how differently we react to things. And it's why it's so important to have women telling stories, women critiquing stories, women of colour, people who are from different backgrounds. Like It's important to get those perspectives on it. So I think it's lovely to have this kind of communal experience of taking in a book so that we can come to new conclusions and I suppose kind of find truths that we might not have found before and share that with each other. I mean, that's the thing about entertainment and art. It's about the sharing. One final question I wanted to ask you both is, I personally feel that Little Women, the book, feels especially relevant now because it's a lot about love and charity and compassion and generosity. Um, do you think it makes it particularly suitable for isolation reading? Um, yeah, because you do have the world of, you know, the Little Women and, and Mami and Hannah who works with them. I mean, that's another interesting, I think, dimension of the book as well, I have to say, and the film is, um, you know, Hannah is the role of, you know, she's basically the sort of, you know, servant, for want of a better word, who comes in and does the cooking and cleaning. So whilst this family on one level you see as they're impoverished, they're not so poor. But what you do get a glimpse into is other families who literally have nothing. And obviously, you know, in, in the opening scenes of the book and usually of the films, and in this one too, is where the family... Um, you know, take their Christmas morning breakfast out to a family that is, you know, a woman on her own with six children. They are in really um, poor circumstances. And so, again, you know, part of this is also about the upbringing of Alcott and her parents, the sort of um, their approach to life. Her mother was a social worker in real life. And Mami in this, you never really see her. There's a lot of the time the, ch- the girls are on their own because Mami is out helping all these other families. Um, and I think, again, you know, looking after your family is important, but important too is reaching out to others and helping them. And yeah, at these times, you know, just the other night I was out clapping in my street and all my neighbours were out and we've been checking on each other to make sure obviously the social distancing that, you know, everybody's okay. Yeah, I think it speaks to that. I think the kind of the whole thing about be kind, it is actually quite a lovely message to have. Maybe we should take a step back and not speak as harshly on people you know who might be sitting down in a park and you can say hey why are you sitting down in a park it's like well maybe they're in a in a flat at the very top and they don't have a garden you know maybe we should just show a bit more empathy I don't want to be preachy I don't think we're all perfect and I think this is a perfect book to show that we aren't perfect but we can learn from it and we can just strive to be better the best versions of ourselves and you're allowed to fail as long as you know as long as you recognize that I think it's a lot about kind of self-awareness. What really lifts I think the book and the film is that it's not saccharine. 
these girls aren't perfect. None of them. I mean, Joe's always held out as the rebel and Amy is the brat. But actually, both Beth and Meg also have their own imperfections as well in all of this. And if it was just this family and it was just a morality tale and, you know, that how good they were and all this thing, it wouldn't be as exciting and it would be pretty boring and it would be unrealistic. Actually, these girls and even Mommy as well, they aren't perfect, but they even find within you know, their own selfishness on many occasions, the chance to sort of actually reach out to others and think about others. And, and that makes it, you know, much more rewarding than some just sort of very saccharine morality tale. Thank you so much, both of you, for your thoughts on Little Women. I'm definitely excited to hear what the listeners have to say about both the book and the film as we progress. Um, now, um, before we met, virtually, I asked you both to have a think about one film that you would recommend for people to watch at home in isolation. Uh, let's start with you, Hannah. What's your choice? Well, it's American Psycho, and it might not be in, I suppose, a specifically isolation choice, just that it's just a phenomenal piece of filmmaking that actually celebrates its 20th anniversary this year. And I thought, as it's girls on film, what better than to choose a movie written and directed by two brilliant women, Mary Harron and Guinevere Turner. I am absolutely enamoured by this movie. It's based on the Bret Easton Ellis book of the same name. And at the time when it was released in 1991, there was a lot of feminist backlash. Gloria Steinem was very much against it. And I think what was brilliant, what Mary and Guinevere did, is that they took the truth of the story that was obviously layered with so much grotesque violence, especially against women. And this is obviously a story about kind of sending up Wall Street yuppie kind of culture and late 80s consumerist culture through Patrick Bateman, played by Christian Bell. And in the book, the kind of grotesque detail that Ellis goes to in describing some of the kind of murders is actually quite shocking. So I can understand why some people were against it and see it as the kind of delivery of its women hating. But what Mary and Guinevere does is take the truth and they actually kind of tone down the violence and focus more on the kind of pre and post rituals of these murder scenes. So actually you feel the true horror of it without actually having to witness the most grotesque moments of it. You know, this is a satire. It's not a horror movie. It's a deeply dark black comedy. And I think, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but for me, this is just a perfect movie that actually benefited from having a feminist perspective. But yeah, I love that film. Great choice. Brilliant. And Caroline, you watched that recently, am I right? Do you know, I watched it for the first time last night. And and I have to say, Hannah, thanks for persuading me to, because over a number of years, actually, um, I think I would be put off from it because from what I'd heard about it, I was concerned that it was, it was going to be, you know, the violence would be too, I mean, the violence is grotesque, but it's uh, it, it's not a it's slasher type violence movie. And I think my perception that that might be the case sort of put me off. But actually, I watched it last night and, and I agree with everything Hannah said. I mean, Christian Bell is amazing. He is one of these method actors who, you know, physically and mentally seems to prepare himself the role to change his body into whatever shape it needs to be. And in this, it's in good shape. There's no doubt about that. But also, I think Hannah's right about Mary Harron, you know, having it from a woman's perspective, because you, you, you know, thinking about what you were saying there, Hannah, you know, it could have been so different if uh, uh, I think a man had directed this, because I think of films like, you know, Wall Street, you know, The Wolf on Wall Street, you know, that whole period is, again of the 80s, which obviously I sort of, you know, lived through as a young adult. Uh, it was people making loads of money. Um, again, 2000 before the 2008 financial crash and everything that happened there and the films that spun out of the financial crash, uh, which said something about predominantly men working in this field where actually you just wonder what they were doing. Because one of the aspects of this film is, is that you don't see them actually doing any work. 
but they just have loads of money. They've all got the same job title. They're sitting in their offices with their Walkmans and, and massive telephones, you know, like, you know, because that's the 80s and, and doodling and all this sort of thing. It's funny you mentioned Wolf of Wall Street because Leonardo DiCaprio was actually, they tried to get him to do it. So originally, Mary Harron wanted Christian Bale. She always wanted him. But then when Lionsgate got a hold of kind of the distribution, they tried to get Leonardo DiCaprio, who's just hot, hot off the back of Titanic, because they thought, oh, it would sell the movie better. And apparently, they had gone through, like, David Cronenberg wrote a version of the script, and he was set to direct. Oliver Stone was brought in, but he did a totally different version of the script to what Mary Harron did. And apparently, the story goes that Christian Bale said he... There was other people like Ewan McGregor offered the role and he basically rang up Ewan McGregor and said, leave it alone. He rang up anyone who was coming here. He was like, this is my role and I'm fighting for it. And honestly, I'm so glad Thank that they did. Thank goodness he did. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love that. So Thank you for that choice. Um, but before we move on to Caroline's choice, let's have a listen to a clip from American Psycho. Did you know that Whitney Houston's debut LP called simply Whitney Houston had four number one singles on it? Did you know that, Chrissy? You, you actually listen to Whitney Houston? You own a Whitney Houston CD? More than one? It's hard to choose a favorite among so many great tracks. But the greatest love of all is one of the best, most powerful songs ever written about self-preservation. Its universal message crosses all boundaries and instills one with the hope that it's not too late to better ourselves. Caroline, what's your choice for isolation viewing? Well, I've chosen Lost Girls, which is on, on Netflix. It's uh, directed by Liz Garbus, who's actually more known for her documentary filmmaking. And it's based on a, on a, on a real life story, but it's about a mother Mari Gilbert, who's determined to find her missing daughter, and um, the police are uninterested. Uh, she launches a, an investigation on her own and hooks up with other mothers and families um, who are trying to find out what's happened to their daughters. And it's really about these unsolved cases of, of these um, uh, sex workers who go missing. And it was one of those films you sort of see, and, and I think, right, I've seen all the big blockbusters and what have you, what else can I see? And I picked up on this, and it was it was really engaging. I mean, there's an element to it that uh, I think comes from her documentary filmmaking, which makes it, I think, quite raw. And it's not, if you like, as maybe as smooth as a, a more traditional sort of film production. Um, thinking about something like Unbelievable, if anybody's uh, seen that, again, it's dealing with rape in that case. But what happens to women as victims who aren't being listened to? But it's actually, I think, very raw. Amy Ryan, who was in Gone Baby Gone, is is the mother, Mary Gilbert. And it is really, it is really engrossing. And it's about, you know, women from a certain background, you know, working class, working in this, in the sex industry, uh, not being cared about when they go missing, not being listened to. And certainly Mary Gilbert is no perfect mother by any stretch. Uh, and her not being listened to her, but she sort of fights on and fights through. Just to say about Liz Garber, she has done some amazing other documentaries. What happened to Miss Simone about Nina Simone? She's done one about Marilyn Monroe and others as well. And um, and she's, a, I think, a really interesting filmmaker. And for her to move into this, which is obviously a more, you know, a drama-based production rather than documentary, I think is an interesting move. That's a brilliant choice. And I'm ashamed to say I haven't got around seeing that yet. So that's definitely top no, I haven't of my either. list. Yeah, right, right. Hannah and I are both going to watch that. So <laughs> let's also have a little listen to a clip from Lost Girls. Thank you. 
was she doing in a gated community, a hundred miles away from home in the middle of the night? My daughter didn't run away. She's missing. Her last contact with anyone was to 911. What happened? I'm just a driver. I wait in my car, and that's all I do. Honestly, who spends this much time looking for a missing hooker? While searching for a missing girl, one of our officers located four bodies. What's over there? Tell me right now, damn it, what did you find? We're going to move on to some other digital releases that people can watch at home and have a, have a brief review of them. Now, here's one that popped up on Netflix the other day, Love Wedding Repeat. It's a British comedy filmed in Rome, written and directed by Dean Craig. It stars Sam Claflin as a stressed brother on his sister's wedding day. And the twist with this is that alternate versions of the day unfold. So I think it's kind of trying to be Groundhog Day meets Four Weddings in a Funeral. It also features Olivia Munn, Freda Pinto and Eleanor Tomlinson. I must say I found this a fairly entertaining, amusing, guilty pleasure. Uh, Hannah, what did you make of it? Yeah, uh, it was kind of very vanilla, easy viewing. I didn't really have to think too much of it. I love Olivia Munn. I wish, I, in a way, I kind of wish it was more from her perspective because as I feel like she had a quite interesting bit and there's, there's certainly good moments in it where they talk about the, the difficulties of dealing with men trying to come on to you who aren't really actually listening to anything that you say. There's a that lovely scene where she sat down next to one guy. I can't remember his name, but... Oh, is it Tim Key that plays him? Yeah, 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 yeah. And he's she's kind of... He's, he's really funny, and but I found it quite frustrating. I suppose that's the point, isn't it? Where she's talking about how she got kidnapped and, she, and he's just making light of it and then only wants to talk about his job in car insurance. It's perfectly fine. I think Frida Pinto, I didn't really... I think there was really much to her character either, which was kind of a shame. A lot it's of kind good to see of, her doing comedy though, because she doesn't often do comedy, and I thought she was actually very good. It definitely kind of suggested to me that she should do more comedy. Yeah. She's giving yeah. better material. Agreed. I really like is it Alan Mustafa? He plays a boyfriend. I love him in People Just Do Nothing. And I think he did very well, even though the kind of running thing about his manhood joke did get a bit tiring. But, you know, there was enough in it that kind of kept me entertained. It was a bit of fun. And yeah, you know, I quite like the ending as well. Yeah. OK. Without giving any spoilers away. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ka- Caroline, I'll leave it at that. Did, did you enjoy it? I'm afraid I didn't. You know, I, I thought, you know, I like a rom-com. I really do. And But I just thought it was just um, didn't work for me. I, I thought it was pretty flat and clumsy and you know, it's called Love Wedding Repeat because, you know, it's looking at how something might happen if certain things changed. And and I was, you know, when they did one change and we saw the same story with a slightly different spin on it, I was just hoping it wasn't going to repeat itself again by the end. I mean, I thought, look, I, I don't mind sort of, you know, crude jokes or slapstick or whatever. We were talking, you know, about, you know, stepbrothers and films like that, you know, super bad and what have you. But there were lots of penis jokes going on, which I thought just became, they just, you know, they just fell flat completely. I like that you said penis and I was trying to avoid that by saying manhood. (laughs) Well, I nearly said dick, but I mean, you know, I thought... Let's call it. Let's call it what it is. But I mean, it just—I don't, I don't know. I just think it. I just think it was. You know, it just didn't work for me. And I and it had some good actors in it. Um, uh, but I just didn't think they were able to shine. And maybe that's you know, it just got a bit too convoluted for its own good. And and actually, in some some respects, it's those sort of British comedies where I think you, there's a fine line between sort of stereotypes 
not working and then something which we know is really British and we all identify and laugh with as Brits. Maybe Americans would like it. I don't know. But it, if I was thinking of Love Actually or Four Weddings and a Funeral, this no way was anywhere it's near It's nowhere that. close to that. I think um, what I liked about it, I mean, I didn't really like the structure. I didn't think that worked. I didn't think the conceit, there was any point in that. I'd have rather seen a straight film about the mm, subject. Mm, I think the strongest mm. element to me was the comedy, simply. And I actually did find it very funny. I was I was one of those a duvet day where I really needed something silly. And I did find it very funny. Having recently been a Madame of Honour at my friend's wedding, I definitely related to all the kind of the speeches. And I thought I thought a couple of the moments of the speeches were very, very funny. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's disposable, I think, but an, an easy watch on Netflix. But good to have different viewpoints on that one. Thank you. Finally, we're going to speak briefly about a film that everyone is aware of and that people can watch at home now. It's Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. This is a film that obviously hits a lot of very familiar beats for fans. Um, it delivers a lot for them and some emotional moments. I personally didn't think it was as good as The Last Jedi, though. Caroline, you've seen it. What did you think? Yeah, I mean, look, I like the Star Wars movies, but I sometimes have found in recent years, and I think I've seen all of the ones that have come out, I start losing track of what's, you know, what's happening where and when and how, you know, has it become just too formulaic in terms of the story? But I thought, you know, in some ways in bringing things together around Ray um, and Kylo Ren and everything else, it was okay. But I'd rather have a Marvel superhero movie than Star Wars. Oh, God, people are going to kill me for that. But that's true. <laughs> <laughs> that's your preference. I get that. I totally see the, the weight behind that. Actually, I, I don't know if I totally agree with myself. Depends on the Marvel movie is what I'd say. And depends on the <laughs> Yeah, we're movie. not talking Thor yeah. Dark World here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what, what did you think of it, Anna? So um, I feel like I'm two different viewers watching this movie. Um, you know, there are a lot, there's so much fan service paid. Like I felt, it felt it in my bones. Like it's a very sentimental movie. We saw people come back. We saw moments and it kind of, I couldn't help but whoop, like cheering and stuff. But then the other side of me is like, what on earth have they done? <laughs> because they have totally dismantled everything that was so progressive and brilliant about The Last Jedi. I mean, it just seemed, it just seemed, it seemed like they pandered to the fanboys who basically just hated The Last Jedi because it didn't play on this typical mythology of the Skywalker that, that Rey had to be from a lineage of Jedis to make her who she is. And what was so progressive about what um, Ryan Johnson did is by saying that she is no one. She's actually, she's not, her family were nothing. Her parents were nothing. Being a Jedi is not about your lineage or your history or your legacy. It's about who you are. You can, you know, and the, the idea that Rey was this new breed of strongest Jedi simply because of who she is. That was amazing. Kelly Marie Tran's role as Rose, like having her and then suddenly having her totally, the way that she's totally sidelined in The Rise mm -hmm. of Skywalker, yeah. where she's just said, oh, sorry, I've just got to stay here. It was so clumsy and just so disrespectful. And then bringing this whole thing back from someone that just made no sense to me, just to try and kind of add some stately gore into Peace fans. Yeah, it just, it really made me sad that we had to end on such an anticlimax, really. So yeah, I was kind of both, I liked it, but the more I read about it, especially since about hearing, and this is what annoys me a bit as well, sorry to go on, but... You know, if you don't learn about something in the film and I have to read a book about it or I have to read a special comic series to understand better what I'm going on in the movie, then you haven't done a good job writing it. And the more I think about it, the more I'm just quite disappointed. 
Uh, yeah, the more the more I hear you speak about it, the more you reminded me of why I was disappointed. So thank you for that <laughs> yeah. reminder. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's a good film in many ways, but comparatively, it's not what it could have been or perhaps what it should have been, particularly after the previous one. So a, a cautious sort of half recommendation for that one there. Now, Hannah and Caroline, you have been fantastic guests can I just say it's so much fun and really appreciate you you coming on to Girls on Film any final messages for our listeners stuck at home yeah just cinema survives on you going out and buying cinema tickets especially independent cinemas um so make sure that you're kind of remembering that when you go back out there and make sure you kind of maybe if you can buy some tickets now or vouchers and stuff you know you can enjoy the benefits when we're out and people can keep making it and showing the films that you want to see quite right thank you Caroline Well, use this isolation in a positive way to try out movies that you maybe haven't given a chance. I mean, American Psycho is a really good example for me. But as Hannah said, when we're allowed out again, never forget going to the cinema is just an amazing experience. Remember that and go and watch a film at the cinema. Absolutely. Support the cinema. Thank you both so much, (laughs) Hannah and Caroline Flynn. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and thank you to Hedda Archbold of HLA Productions for producing to Jane Long for audio producing, to our intern, Heather Dempsey. Girls on Film has a Patreon page. Go to patreon.com forward slash girls on film podcast. Thanks to those who subscribed so far this week to Anna Grigson, Claire Vaughan, Jessica Phillips and Samuel Clements. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at girls on film underscore pod and Instagram on girls on film underscore podcast. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash girls on film podcast. Don't forget to tweet us about Little Women and you could come on the show. Hashtag Little Women Book Club. And for being a loyal listener, we have a special deal for you. 90 days of free subscription to Mubi. Go to mubi.com forward slash girls on film podcast. You've been listening to me, Anna Smith, and I was joined by Hannah and Caroline Flint and Holly Fraser. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film. Stay safe, everyone. But with nearly 40 years of effort, I'm learning to not let it get the better.